Uh, man, let's go ahead. We're just going to jump right in. We have a lot to get through today in James chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn it uh, to the book of James. Uh, we've been working through this series uh, that's going to lead us all the way to Advent this year. Uh, man, I'm really excited. I, I uh, finally kind of nailed down our Advent series uh, that we're going to be walking through starting the last Sunday of November uh, we're going to be working through just the first chapter of Luke, and I'm really excited to just, man, celebrate uh, the Advent season. Um, and so as we gear up for that, we're going to continue today fleshing out this call to faith that, that leads to or produces action. You see, the, this whole book, uh, James's argument, and really what he's been pressing, uh, man, the, this dispersion of Christians who find themselves, man, really in really hard positions uh, in the, the state of their life and where they're at. But not only do they have that, man, they're all, as we all are, wrestling with just, man, day-to-day life, with the, the, our, our own flesh and sin. And, and so, man, James is really just talking about, man, what does it look like to live lives of faith uh, that, that lead to action and not the, an action that is based in, in some type of performance so that we might be accepted by God. Rather, it, it is an overflow of our heart knowing that we are accepted by God. And I mean, I think that we all, man, there's this tendency, I think we can catch ourselves throughout our days and throughout our lives, uh, man, really uh, needing to wrestle with whether or not we are uh, performing for something or we are living in light of the good news that brings rest and peace, but also an empowerment that gives us a passion to proclaim the gospel with our lives. And so what I want to do is we, uh, man, because we're going to continue to just kind of dig into that in our time today. But really quickly, let me just recap what we've seen so far in James. So James kicks off this letter by calling those he's writing to, but us today, to consider it joy in the midst of every trial and circumstance. He says, man, joy when it has its full work. When we allow God uh, to, man, uh, man, by His grace, transform us through each and every season of life, man, it creates perseverance. And he says in the midst of that, like as we're going through trials, that we are to ask for wisdom and faith, knowing that God gives generously to those who ask. We've seen that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry uh, as not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Again, there's this constant push uh, to call us to have a faith that's not just in mere words alone, but, but is faith that leads to an abundance of obedience. Not just claiming faith, but showing faith by the way we live. And then over the last couple of weeks, man, we've really been looking in James 3 uh, at the power of the tongue. You see, oftentimes when we think about action or obedience, we think about all these outward things that we can do most of the time because we want to pat ourselves on the back or look a certain way or have a certain status. And yet James says, no, let's begin uh, pressing into the heart by looking at man. Let's just simply look at our words. How are we speaking? What are we saying? And is it good news to those around us? He says that our tongues need to be bridled, that true wisdom and understanding, especially in terms of how we speak, will show it when we live with godly wisdom or wisdom from above. That is first is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
So we get all that last week and then we closed out our time uh, seeing that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who do what? By those that have the right answer all the time. By those that, that, that do all, that check all the boxes. No, he says it's sown in peace by those who seek to make peace. And may we be a people who see a harvest of righteousness in our lives, in our relationships in this city, not simply because we go to center church, not simply because we're involved in a missional community, not uh, because we do good things, but, but that because we are a people that are known for sowing peace. Man, in your life today, hey, the people that you're around, would they say you're a person that sows peace or you're a person that sows discord? This is where James is going to really, uh, man, press us today. James is going to lay out a set of warnings that are going to call us to look at our own hearts when it comes to the root of the constant fighting and quarreling in and around our lives. And I believe that's so fitting for the, I believe this is fitting for every season, but man, specifically for us today, it's fitting for the time we live in. This is why I love God's word, man, because guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. They were fighting and quarreling when James is writing. And guess what? We're still fighting and quarreling today. And, and I think we need to hear this. It's not just the outside world that's fighting and quarreling. And we in the church are fighting and quarreling. You see, if I were to go around and I were to ask each of you, who's to blame for the variety of problems in the world today? I would assume that we would get a wide variety of answers along with a wider but probably pretty specific set of people who are the source of the issues that are taking place in our world, would we not? It wouldn't be long before we start to name names or at least we name certain things we're passionate about, ideologies we have, whatever. Like those things are just naturally going to come out and we're going to point to those things as being right. And if everyone would just agree with those things, then everything would be fixed. Those other people are the problem. And to that, I'll say there's plenty of blame to go around. Because guess what? At the end of the day, worldly systems are always going to be Worldly systems, they're always going to be broken. They will always fail you. I also believe that if we were to go around and I was to ask each of you individually. And not only if I asked you, but you were completely honest. Who's to blame for the variety of problems that you are currently facing in your own life? We would get a variety of answers. Along with what I'm sure would be a very, very, very specific set of people or a singular person as the source of the issues that are taking place in your world. I'm not saying all the time, like, you know, some some of the situations you'd be like, yeah, I'll take the blame for that. But man, I think because of where our heart naturally goes and we're going to get into it in the text because James is going to reveal it to us. We're pointing to the other people, right? I might not even get the question out before you automatically start pointing fingers and casting blame for why you're getting tripped up, held back, or pushed down due to what so-and-so has done or continues to do. And what I would say to that is that our answers and the blames, while at times, justified, because guess what? Like, I want us to hear this today. Sometimes people hurt us. 
And they're wrong. They are to blame. And like that's a situation like that happened, right? There are things in your life that have wounded you that are legitimate things in your life. And we don't want to diminish those things. But where I would press is how are you responding in light of those things? You see, we would all say that our answers, um, while at times justified, maybe not as much of the time as we would like to think. And I would say that it likely doesn't go deep enough nor anywhere near close enough to what James is going to label as the source of our struggles. Because guess what? The source of your struggle is much closer to home. And it's much closer to your heart than you would like to think or believe. Our time today is going to press again to look at the sin in our own hearts. But guess what? Like... No matter what's been done to you, and we tell our kids this all the time, like their, their sibling does something to them, but then they react in, a, in, a, in an unhealthy, sinful way. Like, well, we'll tell them, it's like, hey, we know they did that, but your response was wrong. We, we'll, we'll deal with what they have done, but we also have to talk about what you've done. You see, I believe we have to press into this if we hope to be the people that flourish in obedient faith that glorifies God and proclaims that his grace is enough. If we're going to be a people of peace that sow peace and see a harvest of righteousness, we've got to dig in here. And so let's look at what James presents as a reason for why we get tripped up in sin and relationships. By reading the first five verses of chapter four uh, in the New American Standard Bible, I love the title of this this chapter. It says things to avoid, which I was like, all right, let's go. We know where we're headed. Uh, you know, if you're a list maker, make your list now. OK, it says this. What causes quarrels and causes what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore... Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, so James, in light of how he closed out chapter three, when talking about the fruit of wisdom that comes from above, which again is just is, uh, man, the fruit of God's spirit. He points us uh, not outward to a list of quick fixes or finger pointing mechanisms of pride, Where we can now boast in what we've done. Instead, he asks us a really tough rhetorical question. That again, we give a lot of answers to. And so let me state the question again. I'm going to lay out why I believe we're so quick to have an answer. And then, man, we're just going to allow the text to really expose the reality of our problem. So the question is this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? What James is asking here is why in the world church, right? Like he, because again, he's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. 
We see that again at the end of verse 5 when he says that the Spirit has been made to dwell in us. He says, why church? Why do you think you're so riddled with strife, envy, broken relationships, gossip, power plays, a hunger for position, riches, and escapism? Which is what they were after, which, guess what, sounds pretty similar to what we're often after. And again, what's our common answer? Well, other people. The reason I quarrel and fight is because of them. Our most common answer to problems, fights, and issues we have are other people. They're the reason we get tripped up in sin, are they not? Like we're so quick, like we trip in sin and immediately look to cast that blame. Like that, that's, uh, we've, we have said it a thousand times. That's Genesis 3, right? Like right after the fall, you know, why did you, did you eat the fruit? Well, the woman made me do it, right? Like immediately, boom, it didn't take any time. Cast that blame off, Right? You ever seen kids playing out on a playground like one's running and there's no one around the child and it trips and immediately gets up angry looking around like ready to blame someone for tripping them like no dude like you're out there alone man like you did that you know wasn't even a grass monster that got you like you you just tripped over your own feet but we're so quick like we trip we're like who who's who's in earshot so I can let them know. If you're married in the room today, how often are you quick to believe that your spouse is the sort of the issues in your marriage? You would just do this. If you, man, how many times do I have to tell you, right? Our children, whoever, right? That person on the road, you know? That cuts you off like, you know, like, guess what? They're not to blame for you telling them they're number one. All right. Like they're not to blame. Like it's your sin. You tripped up. I love that James asked this question. And man, again, he 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 means for it to be rhetorical. But I believe that we can that we can see it as rhetorical. But the answer that we give is different than the answer James gives. He says others while we he, James says your own sinful hearts, your selfish desires. He says it's you, the source of your fights and quarrels, which really the warring that you have in life. is not the brokenness of others while they are broken and sinful, just as we are. The source of our broken responses in the midst of fights and quarrels is our own sin. And man, that is hard for us to hear. And I think what else is hard to hear? It, 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 these aren't one off things, right? The description of what James is talking about is this is an ongoing thing. This is tripping us up over and over and over again. Man, today for you, what sin, what fight, what quarrel, oh man, what, what is it battle in your life? And, and do you see it as other people's problems or your own selfishness? You see, not only that, like we need to see it as that, but like even as we wrestle with our own selfishness and sin and work on us, guess what? The battle, even in the moment, the battle's still not against flesh and blood. Scripture says the battle's against Satan, and yet we, even in the midst of working ourselves, we're still attacking the other person instead of, no, we, we are called to attack the real enemy. 
We're fighting the wrong people. So James answers the question by pressing us to look inside and see it. He says, it's your own desires. It's your selfishness. Uh, Another word for this is hedonism. James says the reason we constantly find ourselves fighting with others or even just dissatisfied with life is due to the fact that we believe that our happiness or our pleasure is our greatest good. That the greatest good in our life is that we would be happy. Guess what? I mean, I believe that our most common response to every situation in life, apart from God's grace, is not to sit back and say, God, what are you trying to do in this moment? Man, our most common response is to place ourselves as a sinner and make it all about us, is it not? Amen, Peter. (laughs) That's what we do. Like we are so quick to make it about us. And, and but we'll even label it as Jesus. And I, I like I think, you know, I, I've shared recently just like I've just had frustration and and things like that. But I mean, I believe that just working through this this week and even this morning, man, I was just so convicted and and God was just really just doing a work in my heart. And so I, I, was, I was like, hey, I need you to pray for me. Because, man, you know, I feel that I have this struggle, but I feel that God's wanting to root out some things in my life because it's my own selfishness. And it comes in terms of Sunday mornings. Like I told you all a few weeks back, like, man, I, on, there was a, a season where Saturday morning, as soon as I would open my eyes, I would already hate Sunday because I was just frustrated. And it was coming out and frustration towards my kids and and just being impatient and just, man, just... I wasn't being nice. And I can still find myself tempted in moments just to be frustrated. And I think like where I find it, where I wrestle with is like, man, how do we get people to come back to church? And it's not just our church, like generally, like every pastor I talk to, they're like, we don't know. We're trying to figure the same things out. Like, how do we make church this valued thing again? And I understand people have stuff and people like, but man, I think, and I, and, and I, I get that, but also I think there is something to it where, man, it's just become devalued. And so I can wrestle with that. And the way I can label that is I want people in church because they need to be in church because the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering, right? And so when I see just a few people in here on a Sunday, I can get really frustrated and be like, man, I wish people would just show up to church. Because they need to be here. But what I felt the Spirit say today is, no, Kyle, it's because you want people there so they can hear you. And I was like, oh, I don't want to hear that. This is too early. <laughs> but that's it. I think if I'm honest, most times it's because it makes me feel good when there's a lot of people in here. Because my selfish desires can get in the way. And then I, on top of that, I hear, uh, I heard, you know, the guy I listened to all, I heard Matt Chandler say the other day in a sermon, he said, you know, I mean, if it's just like eight of us in here just praising God, I'd be okay with that. And I'm like, yeah, you can say that, bro. You got like 5,000 people in your church. That's never going to be a reality, you know, like, <laughs> and, and, but I'm sitting there like I'm upset, but I'm like, but am, am I okay with that? I'd like to say I would be. But I've shared with you all before, three weeks into our church plant, there was like there was like the first two weeks, 
that we launched our gathering. It was like a hundred people every week. And the next week there was literally like four people in our gathering. And I didn't know the mic was on. And I started with this under my breath through the speakers. This sucks. Like that was it, right? Like, cause my heart was just coming out. And I wish it would have changed, but oftentimes it hasn't. I want it to change. And I think it needs to change, but all, like, on the, like, I believe people need to come to church and value church, but not for the sake of me. And for the sake of me, it's wrong. And I need to repent of that because it's a selfish desire. And guess what? I quarrel and fight and war. What is it for you today? Maybe it's something you spiritualize. Maybe it's something you don't spiritualize, right? How many of you in the room have been guilty or are guilty of making it all about you? And if you don't get it exactly the way you want, you just rage. You're like a kid on the cereal aisle, you know? I want that. If I don't get it, I'm going to throw a fit. Our fits look different. Maybe they don't. Maybe our fits look the same. But it's all in health. You see, when we seek pleasure of self as our greatest good, rather than finding pleasure in the gospel of Jesus that provides not simply life, but all that we need for rest, hope, and joy, we find ourselves constantly grasping and fighting for things that never satisfy and always, every single time, lead to destruction, specifically in relationship. Verse 2 says this, he says, this is why when you pray and you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet and can't obtain what you need. So you fight and quarrel like little children. To desire and covet is to lust after. And and even if you get it, guess what? You can't really have what you long for. You can't obtain it. He says, what's your response? So you murder and you fight. You commit murder in your heart due to your selfish desires of the flesh. Guess what? I will quickly seek to destroy the goodness in and made by others if it gets in the way of my own pursuit and my ability to have the things I desire and covet. Like, I'll use the example of a kid because guess what? We all act like kids. If I see something I want, if you have my toy, I'm going to come and I'm going to punch you in the mouth, right? Right? I'm going to hit and I'm going to get that thing because guess what? It's mine. We do the same thing. Maybe we don't punch in the mouth. Maybe we do. But we do whatever. Like, I want that. It's mine and I'm going to get it. See it all throughout Scripture. It's what Cain did. It's what David did, right? Like, he lusted after Bathsheba. And then when he had what he thought he wanted, it didn't work out. And the consequences came. And so what did he do? He murdered, tried to cover it up. James says, look, he says, the reason you're not satisfied is because when you pray, he says, you're not asking for the right things. Or he said, you may be asking for the right things. You're just asking in the wrong way. Your, your, Your focus is on you. Man, what are you asking for? And why are you asking for it? I think a lot of times we're asking for things to just bring us momentary relief and momentary happiness. 
We're not praying big prayers or hard prayers. But you see, the thing about happiness is that it's fleeting. It never lasts. It's always seeking to provide for self. But God never promises you happiness. I, I would argue that he doesn't care about your happiness because it's a cheap imitation of joy. You see, joy is what he promises us and joy is eternal. It doesn't slip through your fingers. It sustains. And so, man, we have to quit with the imitation. We have to quit with the selfishness and we have to choose joy. And so how do we choose joy? And I believe we choose joy by immersing ourselves, not in the things of the world, but we immerse ourselves in Christ. This is the calling upon our lives. John Piper said it well when he said about our call to joy. He said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Not all the other things by enjoying God forever. If you will just enjoy God more and more every day, guess what? You'll be satisfied. So are you enjoying God in your life right now? And just, just begin to pull back your life. Are you enjoying God? Are you satisfied? And man, if you are not satisfied, if you have no joy, I would argue it's that God is not to blame. Rather, the problem is you're seeking to find happiness in the areas that you wish to be satisfied in rather than simply enjoying God as your satisfaction, which is then the fruit of that is quarrel and fighting. And so today, what are you immersing yourself in? What is it producing in your life? Is it producing fleeting happiness or lasting joy? James then says, hey, you adulterous people, which again is a word like, we're like, how dare you? He says, you adulterous people. And he follows with the truth. He says, essentially what he says, he says, in the kingdom, you can't serve two masters. You'll either choose the kingdom of self or the kingdom of Christ. You see, this is where our daily battle lies. Will you choose self and happiness or will you choose the kingdom of God and lasting joy? And how you answer, respond, and live reveals what you value, pursue, and prioritize. How you answer that question. How you respond to that question and how you live will reveal what you value, pursue, and prioritize. See, God really cares about this because guess what? He is about his glory alone. It's all his. But God, as James says, he's also jealous over the spirit that dwells inside those who believe. And why wouldn't he be? I mean, he gave his own son. He gave his son who gave his life so that we might have joy. We might have life and not just life, life to the fullest. We have to get this. We have to realize that this good news of the gospel, this good news that God is jealous for us is because he gave so much for it. It's not just something to be tossed around based on how you're feeling. As long as we remembered, we prayed a prayer at some point. It's good news for your whole life. It's to transform everything about you. It's the joy that we're after. Oh, how great is that joy? You see, this is what James is trying to get us to realize in the midst of telling us to avoid our selfishness. 
And writing to us as followers of Jesus, he's calling us to refocus and allow the Spirit to reveal our focus, especially in terms of how we run toward and respond to conflict, jealousy, pride, and selfishness. What he's calling us to, he's saying, hey, if you want those things to stop, you've got to kill that. You've got to kill yourself. That's why Jesus says, if anyone's going to follow me, what are they going to have to do? They're going to take up their cross. Guess what? The most selfless act you can do. What he's saying is you're going to have to die. And it's a daily act. But let's continue to look at how, because, man, I think it's such. Verse six begins with such good news for us. Let's look at six through ten. Just, just, I'm going to read the first part of verse 6 a couple of times. But he gives more grace. We believe that today. He gives more grace. Let's just stop really quickly. There's always more grace. Like it's not just that he gave, just he gives more grace and more grace and more grace. Not so that we can just freely do whatever we want, right? So that it would turn, like His grace turns us. And it's, man, it's such a beautiful picture of His love that He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The solution to all of this is that God gives more grace. He gives more and more and more grace. He doesn't give you another 10 step plan to fix what ails you. He doesn't lay out a new training program to get you back on track. He doesn't yell at you like a drill sergeant until you break and get in line. He gives more grace. Today, do we believe that his more grace is enough? Because guess what? We all need it. Yesterday, I did a wedding. And as I was doing the wedding, I shared about how God gives more grace in the couple's marriage, in all marriages, uh, that are covered in the reality that his grace is made perfect in what? In our weakness. And as I said that, I realized that I needed his grace to be perfect in my weakness because I, I was sharing this with the couple and I look up and every, I, I'd, you know, I was about five minutes into the, my, my notes and I look up and everyone's still standing. I was like, that's weird. Everyone's still standing. Huh. And then I read another line and I was like, oh no. I forgot to tell them to sit down. And so I immediately, like, I tell them that, and I'm like, hey, and I need grace from y'all. Y'all can be seated, okay? I was like, I, like, my, I, I've totally forgot. I just got going. And, and then I was like, and guess what? Like, I, look, I wish I could say this was my first time that that happened, but it's not. <laughs> the first wedding I ever did, I went even further, and then I was like, man, that's weird. Like, I don't remember ever standing up in a wedding that long. And I was like, oh, crud. And I put it in my notes. Huge, bold, red letters. Tell the people to sit down. Moved right past it, right? And everyone laughed. And, you know, it just, it kind of broke the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the moment. And, and we moved on. But man, I, I think that's the reality is, guess what? 
In life, we all get tripped up. We all get tripped up by our own selves. You trip yourself up more than anyone else. And yet the solution is that God gives more grace in each and every situation. A guy named John Blanchard says this. He said, for the daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. He provides a solution for all our problems, selfishness, and sin. More grace. This is what we need. But look, because he says that there's more grace, but then look at how that grace is received. It's received not by the proud who believe themselves to be enough, but by the humble who realize they're not enough. Grace's stream flows to the humble. Here we find the key to dealing with our selfishness and constant fighting humility. God's greater grace is that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This humility is only turned to when we realize the humility of our Savior. And if you want to know why we need humility, man, look to Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 says, Have this mind among yourselves, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus made a way for us to receive grace because he humbled himself. In turn, we should be humbled by this great love. You read the first four verses of Philippians 2. That's what Paul says. He calls the church. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. You see, as we humble ourselves before God, we receive his grace. And guess what? Then he doesn't say, hey, go in pride and live your life. He says, no, in that humility, go and serve others. See others as more than yourself. Quit doing things out of selfishness and selfish ambition. Go and serve others in selflessness. In light of Jesus' humility, we humble ourselves. You see, Paul or the proud place their heart on other things. But the humble place their heart in total dependence to God. And today, where's your heart? Will you continue to walk in pride or you walk in humility? And the problem, I believe, with why we don't walk in humility is because we're too preoccupied with our own selfish desires to even notice we're being prideful. We don't see our selfishness as pride, which is what it is. We have to wake up. Maybe some of you today, maybe you're just okay with your pride. Man, if you are. Pride has such a grasp on your heart today. Man I, I, man, I pray that God's opened your eyes. And if your pride is so great and you can't see that every relationship you have is burning to the ground, and I pray for God's grace to open your eyes today. It's a dangerous place to be. 
And so what are we to do as we understand that God gives more grace? Well, James gives us some steps for humility that lead to joy. In verses 7 and 8, he says, submit to God. What that means is that means, look, every day I submit my, my will, my desire. I lay everything at Jesus' feet. He says, submit to God. And then he says, resist the devil. Note, he didn't say, resist your spouse. Resist your kids. No, he says, no, the real enemy. Resist the real enemy. That word resist there is stand your ground. It's a military term. It means you should be fighting like it's a real battle. And you need to realize that it's a battle you can't win by yourself. You need, you need God's grace. You need His Spirit. You need to pray. You need His Word. And guess what? You need community. The battles of your life aren't won alone. You need community. There's no, like, there's no... It would be silly for an army to send out one guy, right? It was silly. And yet we often go out thinking we're going to be like David, right? Guess what? God used David. God, David didn't kill Goliath. God killed Goliath through David. But we go out thinking, I got this. We need each other. And you see the result. He says, submit to God, resist the devil. And he says, the promise is that he will flee from you. Another way of saying this is that he will have no foothold in your life. Because guess what? Does it mean like, like you, you resist the devil one time? Does he just go away? No, guess what? He's going to come back. And you just got to punch him in the face again. Right? Like... That's what you do. Submit to God, resist the devil. Say, no, get away. Verse 8, it says to draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Drawing near in worship and prayer and his word. He's near. And he goes, he says, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. This, this is the outward and the inward form of repentance. Cleanse your hands is to, is the outward form of repentance. It's reforming your actions, uh, having less self, more service and care and concern for those around you. Purifying your heart is the inward form of repentance. It's crying out to God and saying, God, it's not just my outward actions that need to change. Where it's where we often go, right? I'm not going to yell at my kids again. I'm not going to yell at my wife again. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not, you know, going to look to those other things, right? And then the next day, what do we find ourselves doing? No, it's because we've got to go inward too. We've got to say, God, I need you to reform just my motivations. I need your grace to get inside here. And then, guess what? Those, it'll empower those outward things to happen. Then the passage closes kind of weird. It says, you need to be miserable, mourn, and weep. It's like, man, James, can't you just be a little happy? You know, like really giving it to us here today, like just beating us up. But he says, turn your joy to gloom. Guess what? James is not saying we should walk around mourning and feeling bad about ourselves. He's not condemning us. 
Rather, he's making a statement that the realization of our pride, selfishness, and lack of choosing joy should bring us to the mournful repentance. It should sicken us. And then in turn, we should do as verse 10 says, we should humble ourselves before the Lord so that he might exalt us. He might free us from ourselves, change us, reform our hearts to look like the servant heart of his son. This is what we need. And today, where is God calling you to turn from the selfish desires that are raging war in your soul and relationships that are causes fights and quarrels in your life? Man, I want to encourage you, allow the spirit to work on you. Allow it to be a deep work, a hard work. Man, be quick to repent today. Don't say, well, I need to process that a little bit. No, the spirit's saying, hey, you need to repent, repent now. Satan doesn't care. If you follow God, he doesn't care if you repent in the words of J.C. Ralph, as long as you do it tomorrow. Right? Like he doesn't care if you say, I'm going to do that. He says, okay, but as long as you, as long as you say, I'm going to do it tomorrow. No, do it today. Let it be a repentant work. Let it be a grace-filled work. Cling to grace, not performance. Cry out for a harvest of righteousness to be sown in your life in peace. By God who is our peace so that you might go and be a person of peace. I'm going to have the team come back up today. and uh, Man, we're going to worship and, and share in communion. But man, I want to invite you to, man, wrestle with those things today. Ask the Spirit just to reveal, man, where in your heart, where in your life are you seeking selfish desires and you're seeing that, it, man, it's just it's creating an inferno of just brokenness and repent of it today. Maybe you don't even need to. Maybe, maybe as you repent of it, maybe you need to go share. Maybe it's no one else knows. Which, again, is why we need community, right? Like, hey, I do these things, you know. I need you to know so you can hold me accountable and you can ask me like, hey, how's that going? So I want to invite you into this. I know it's, man, this is not an easy text, but man, it's a good text because there is more grace. God gives more grace. Because His Son, Jesus, was enough. We believe that today. I'm going to give you some time to respond, and then when you're ready, you can come. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to share in communion, sharing and remembering, man, uh, the the act of grace came by the greatest act of humility. That on the cross, Jesus' response was, uh, was that victory would be won. Through his death, a victory was that, that his battle was not against those that were uh, that that that, um, uh, that that were cursing him. His battle was against sin, Satan, and death. He came out victorious. May we remember that. May we find hope in that. May we draw near, as our passage said today. Father, we ask for more grace. We so quickly turn to selfish desires. We so quickly turn to fight and quarrel because, man, the natural part of us just wants to seek our own good. And yet, God, you are better. Just reveal that to us in a deeper way today. And may it radically, 
just change our life. May it radically draw us to repentance that we would be man, a, a quick to repent, knowing that repentance is good for our souls. We would allow that deep work of the heart, but also a deep work in our actions. That we would not just claim something, but we would act by the power of your spirit. But we need you to do this. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. May we die to self daily and look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.